0: Welcome to the Goldsmith Odyssey. I'm Yavar Maradi, joined by my co-hosts, Clark, David, and Jens. Welcome, guys.
1: Hello. Hey. Hello.
0: And uh, spurred by a new La La Land Records release last month, we are here to discuss The Burbs. We have a great panel here. And I thought I'd start off by introducing three gentlemen who were especially honored to be able to welcome back to the podcast because they collaborated with Jerry on the film back in 1988. Welcome back recording engineer Bruce Botnick. Hi, Bruce. Hi. <laughs> Editor Marshall Harvey. Hello, Marshall. Hello there. And director Joe Dante. Thanks for joining us again, Joe.
2: Hi, how are you?
0: And here to discuss working on the new complete La La Land Records release of The Score, we welcome back to the show album producer Neil S. Bulk. Welcome, Neil. Hello.
3: Co-producer Mike Mattesino couldn't make it today.
0: Right. Yeah, you're both credited as as producers on there. And yeah, sorry, Mike couldn't make it, but uh, so glad to have you. And as our listeners know, we're always trying to add more new voices to this Goldsmith Odyssey project. And for this conversation, we're so happy to welcome Dan Goldwasser for the first time, who has contributed his fine art direction and package design to this release, but who also produced IQ, Seconds, and The Sum of All Fears for La La Land Records years ago. To say nothing of his work on the wonderful, shall we say, Goldsmith-adjacent music written for the Orville. Great stuff. Uh, Great to have you, Dan.
4: Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Dan, before we talk about the burbs, we really do like to begin with an important question to newcomers to the podcast. And that is, what was your earliest experience with the music of Jerry Goldsmith?
4: Well, um, I would say it probably was as a kid going to the movies. And in that case, given I was probably too young to see Poltergeist, that my parents wouldn't let me see it. Um, I would probably have to say it was either Twilight Zone, the movie. gremlins <sighs> was probably my first exposure to to Goldsmith, and uh ever since then obviously you know it's it's one of those things where i never expected i'd ever meet the guy and yet uh was fortunate enough to do so uh before he passed attending a few of his scoring sessions and worked on a few of the albums that have been released uh showcasing his work so certainly you know as a kid growing up getting into movies and film music it was really like he was one of those guys who had a sound that I would uh I would always gravitate towards and you know just kind of felt fell in love with his style and then discovered his earlier works from the 60s and 70s and you know it was really fascinating to see the different arcs of his career
0: and between uh, Gremlin's and Twilight Zone I guess it was kind of Joe's fault that you got into Goldsmith
4: from the beginning <laughs> yeah yeah so th- thank you Joe uh you know can't can't uh couldn't have done it without you
0: I was lucky. I I lucked
2: into Jerry because he had he was hired for the Twilight Zone before I was, so he was already he was already part of the package.
4: Nice.
0: But as I understand it, Joe, I, weren't you the only director that got to interact with him on the uh, post production of that film? The the other three, I'm not sure, did the. Spot well, I don't. And all th- I, of that I don't think him.
2: George. I don't think George Miller was was there. I think he had gone back to Australia, and uh, everybody else was consumed with the uh, the drama uh, surrounding the movie and uh so it was really Frank Marshall and I who kind of finished the picture with Jerry.
0: Let's talk about the Burbs. Joe and Marshall, can you talk about uh kind of the genesis of the film and uh at what point Jerry Goldsmith was brought on?
2: Uh the genesis. Um well the genesis was that uh the uh Ron Howard and Brian Grazer were starting a company called Imagine Films and this was going to be their initial offering uh and um there was they had to deal with universal so uh it was a studio picture but it was made during a writer's strike so the whole picture was shot basically it was the only thing going on the lot while the picture was being made and um so we had kind of carte blanche uh, it was just us and the uh, the deer and the raccoons uh, on the back lot for you know the summer and uh and the, and the tour of course because you know if you if you listen hard in the movie you could actually hear the universal tour going by um in, in, as you can in almost every universal project from that period uh and, but as far as the uh, music goes i mean i think i had uh, yeah every every time i was offered something i would uh, always say that you know i wanted jerry to do the music and sometimes he was available sometimes he wasn't uh sometimes you couldn't afford him uh, particularly for the tv stuff but uh, on this, in, in this one, I do remember saying that uh, early on that I, I wanted to have Jerry involved, and um, I don't. I, I we really didn't talk much about about it until you know he we obviously sent him the script and he agreed. But uh, he, he uh, it was really when he saw the rough cut that um, I, I think he started thinking seriously about what he was going to do.
5: Joe, in an interview, you mentioned that you had talked to Georges Delarue early on about the possibility of doing this movie? How did that come about?
2: Uh, well, it looked like for a while, Jerry wasn't going to be available. Uh, he was uh, he had some other project that he was maybe there was going to be a conflict. And uh, if, if there was going to be a conflict, I I, I didn't want to just have to take some house composer for the studio. I wanted to get somebody good. And I'd always been a huge fan of, of Delarue. And I got to meet him, uh, which was great.
0: Connected with the Burbs is how you met him.
2: With the Burbs, yes. No, he came in. I talked to him, uh, and uh, he was he was. If the Jerry thing didn't work out, he was my my next choice, but uh, it it uh, it didn't actually come to that because Jerry w- turned out to be available. You chose Delarue over Marconi. <laughs> Marconi <laughs> was very very difficult to get. Yeah, he was. He was as he, as you look at his resume, and you see how many things he was involved with at the time. I mean, I was amazed when John Davison got him uh, for White Dog.
6: Did the writer strike? Uh, is that did that make Jerry more available for you, Joe? Because there were projects not being done.
2: I think something. I think something may have fallen through that he was going to do, and that's why.
0: It's funny how things can just work out sometimes. Because I mean, when. It, there didn't end up being a case in your long run of films with Jerry where you had a feature film that he didn't do but i mean I, with him being so prolific and doing 5 to 7 films every year i imagine it must have been pretty tricky sometimes to to work out the schedules so that he could work on what you were doing
2: It was, and there and uh, there were times when it's this this business is so erratic. I mean, you 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 think you have a job and then you don't, and you think you have a project that's going and then it doesn't. Uh, And and Jerry had his share of that too. uh, In addition to having things thrown out after he wrote them, Um, so it's 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 kind of a little, but and 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 you have to do a lot of juggling in order to make it work. But it was always worth it.
0: Well, I think one of the reasons this is my favorite. Goldsmith's score for one of your films is it's its so disparate. It's got like, I don't know, at least a half dozen extremely different unrelated ideas. but what he's able to do is make them all meld and flow together in kind of a shocking way to take such such different ingredients. Like if this was uh, a meal being f- prepared, y- you wouldn't think these ingredients would be ones that would fit together. Like they, we've got the jangly percussion. Oregon. Strange uh, ceremony music, <laughs> the Western. got literally everything in the kitchen sink, I, I like to say about this score, and that's something I guess in common it has with Looney Tunes, but somehow he makes it all fit and feel like part of one you know, unique work of his. In films he did for you, he seemed to especially enjoy little musical Easter eggs and such. Yeah, the,
7: the Gremlin music in uh, Looney Tunes is a, is a good example. Was also the Rambo music in Gremlins too. Lots of examples of this.
0: Well, both of you, Joe and Marshall, you were you were fans of his work, and I wonder if he was just getting playful with you because he would like he, i wonder if he thought to himself will they notice this will i get a laugh
2: no I, he he was we were we were we were all pretty tight by then i mean he 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 knew that we knew what he was doing and uh and i'm sure he did some of it just to amuse us well
6: and your your movies are culturally pretty culturally aware too so i mean the references are built into your films too so why not do it with the score it fits right in yeah,
0: Yeah, and sometimes he would reference other people's music, like, of course, uh, Looney Tunes has the obligatory almost powerhouse reference to uh, Raymond Scott, right, I think, and uh, and there were a number of other. like
7: Psycho, obviously, there's so much in that story.
0: You're right, Psycho, yeah, but, you know, there's so many references, like, sometimes my ears will recognize something, and I don't even necessarily know what it is, but I'm like, oh, I've heard this before, but Jerry's clearly making a joke here a musical joke. And I didn't hear him do that um, on many other films that weren't Joe Dante films. It seems to be something he
5: particularly liked to do for you.
2: Um, And I appreciated it.
5: (laughs) Speaking of Jerry having fun on this score, uh, there are a couple of synth effects, I'm assuming they're synth effects, uh, that are very amusing in this. Uh, He's got the little barking dog effect. (laughs)
2: That was definitely something that he had on his computer, I remember.
5: Okay. <laughs> and then the, there's something that sounds like a rubber duck <laughs> later as well. Squeaky. <laughs> in this score. Uh, Bruce, can you tell us anything about the creation of those sounds?
8: Well, those are something that he would have done in his studio at home. And, I, I Joe, I don't, you came over to the house to to listen to a temp and what he was doing, what he was creating. And and a lot of those things would just appear because of his, his sense of humor, he just loved it, where he could stick stuff in <laughs> stuff in. And 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 his he always wanted to give the sound uh, editors, uh, designers a fit. He loved that. <laughs> it's true. <laughs>
3: So Gremlins has a cat, and
6: this has a dog. Oh, there you like Gremlins has a cat. Yeah. Well, a... not
8: that. You know, he would, he, would, he would put things in that the sound designer would put in, and then the sound designer would go bonkers because it was locked into the score,
0: you know, <laughs> that there was a sound going. And he did it intentionally. Can't, can't dial out the dog barks.
8: <laughs> yeah, we, he used to say we we're at war
0: effects
2: <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> mm-hmm. wow Well, he did a lot of he did a lot of of my pictures with mark Mangini and they actually uh got along very well
0: oh that's good yeah good this is not even
7: the first time that he used the barking dog right we heard it in um lonely guy
5: oh did oh is that in there Is that the same barking dog? Do you know? It might be. I mean, maybe it's a different sample. Okay. (laughs) There's
0: a lot of wacky stuff in that score. I do think of that as an honorary Joe Dante score. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) Or, or marshall or Bruce do you remember your reactions to when you heard the the dog barks or the the, <laughs> the uh, rubber ducky squeaks in this like did you did he play those for you and you know well he played he played the
2: barky dog separately for me mm-hmm. uh at his studio and uh and i i thought it was very funny uh the other one i didn't hear until we actually started mixing the movie
8: ah now i never was surprised when something like that would happen. I expected something to happen that we didn't expect. made it fun to go to work.
0: Yeah. Especially when it was a a Joe Dante project, were you just more prepared for the weird to appear, Bruce? (laughs) Uh,
8: No, I mean, Jerry always found time to have Joe go out into the orchestra and play something. Either it was a siren <laughs> or it's something, or even, I don't know, did he get you up there to conduct one time, Joe? Uh,
2: I, I'm embarrassed to say yes, he did, and it was a disaster. Yeah, it
8: was great. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, no, thank God, I've have, I have erased it, <laughs> erased it from my memory.
8: Unfortunately, we didn't do a video of
3: it.
0: Neil, one day you'll come across this.
2: (laughs) I don't think that take made it out of the US studio. Well,
3: I'll I'll have to go through all the tapes now because I have Gremlins 2 and I have this. And
0: so we'll see. It might have
2: been on Gremlins 2, now that I think.
0: Oh, okay. All right. For the future reissue. That's right. (laughs) Bonus track conducted by Joe Dante. We have to look forward to.
8: (laughs) I'm sure
2: it was. uh, It's a brief track, if it exists. (laughs)
0: Dan or Neil, talk about your work on this. What was it like for you when you uncovered some of these um, unreleased alternates, Neil?
3: The, the, the big, or listening to it, the big moment was when we found the archive, you know, all the two-inch tapes, the Scoring Masters. And we went, oh, well, there's an alternate this, there's a that, and there's like, oh, there's all this great stuff that we can include. So that was... Because uh yeah, on that one that was that was the big deal was actually just finding the tapes, going oh there's stuff missing that apparently there was another scoring session and that's never been available. It was
0: like a late pickup session, right? Yes. Um, in that that was in early 1989 instead of 1988. It was
3: in January, so about six weeks before the movie opened.
0: Do you know if
7: those two-inch tapes were the same source that was used for the original album or the previous the two previous releases, or no, are they um, a new source?
0: They weren't. They just had an old DAT. I think for the previous
3: I think that was oh, wow. used for the original album and for the reissue. I think they were the same source. So to go back to the two-inch which had Bruce's mm-hmm. film mix on it was, you know, it was quite a find. I was really struck by the
7: improvement in sound. That makes sense because it just seems to have a richness and a fullness of body and more bass and more detail and just generally everything everything's better which i wasn't expecting because the old album sounded great to me it was always one of those like I wasn't particularly excited about this release because I thought how much better could it be the original album's already perfect you know I'm used to it and I like it the way it is and uh, I was really shocked by how much better it was
3: surprising because I've worked on a number of these projects that Bruce has engineered over the years, and Bruce, you were using digital pretty early. mm mm-hmm. um, Going back to motion picture. Yep. Um, and The Burbs was an analog recording, however. And I, I didn't know why that decision was made. Was that a universal thing? Was that your decision? Um, Gremlins was digital. Um... I think interspace. I, I can't recall now if that was digital or not, but this one was analog, and I, I didn't. I didn't. Don't know why. Why that decision was made. I don't, I
8: don't know. I don't know why we did either, and and you know I just can't remember, is why that decision was made. But uh, was it was it a fifteen or thirty? Uh, let me be able to
3: check. I think it was thirty with Dolby SR.
8: Wow. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons it sounds better than the debt. Mm-hmm.
3: Believe me. There, there
0: you go. Yeah.
3: Forgive me. It was 15 IPS with Dolby SR. I got confused by the by the time code. That was 30.
0: Okay. <laughs> the uh, the jangly percussion is one of the you know that weird. I'm not sure what that instrument is, <laughs> but that weird um, effect that goes throughout the score. It sounds so much more detailed now. there's there's so much more nuance to it whereas before it was kind of more recessed i'm just so surprised at uh, what a difference in sound the new album has when like jen's i thought the old one sounded really good already
8: the reality is we've been able to go back you know to all these tapes be a digital analog and we can do better today we hear things differently because we're not under a time constraint um i mean i I listen many times where the live mix, which is what Jerry always wanted, the live mix, to get the performance from the orchestra and from me. And that's what went into the film. But, you know, years later, in hindsight, you go back and you got the multitrack in your hands. All of a sudden, you can hear things that should have been tweaked that that just make it better. And uh, so that's a good thing.
4: Yeah, I, I was just going to say, for, for me, um, you know, I didn't work on the production side, Neil did. But when I got to hear it, it, it's like for 30 years, you you know what the sound is, because that's the album that you've had for, you know, three decades. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's like, it's like a brand new recording, even though it's the exact same recording, because you're hearing just so much detail that you didn't hear before. And it's it's really like, you know, it wasn't a new mix, it wasn't, you know, re, redone, but it's just like polishing, you know, and you get, like the, the, the patina is just cleaned away and then just reveals all these intricate details that were there the whole time. Um, and, you know, Neil and I, we did another project this last year as well that had the same sort of thing with The Godfather. Fifty years, it had a, it had a certain sound, mm-hmm. and then to discover the original recording was pristine, and it's just like. A revelation like a, that, it felt like it was recorded this year
7: that was another one recently that shocked me because again you know what the godfather sounds like <laughs> yeah and then you hear that and it's like holy moly
3: i actually i actually said to dan uh, a few occasions like does this sound too good yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's astounding. Is, this a, is this a problem it,
4: let, let, let's add more compression and you know <laughs> pull down the eq and make it yeah because it's almost like you, you're touching history right so you don't want to feel like you're you know you have an ego about it um like you know oh we can make this better like what do they know it's only been 50 years or in the case of the burbs you know 30 years of of this sound but when you go and it's the original recording it's the original mix and you realize wow for 30 years we haven't heard it the way it could have been heard and that's not the fault anyone that's just how it was and it's, it's just like, it's a revelation because I think it, it's, it's, you know, you're hearing details in the score. I mean, when I heard it, I was almost going to ask Neil, like, is this right? Because <laughs> it's, it's like, this sounds, it's, it's almost sounded too different at times. Not that it was wrong, but just, it's not what I had been used to for so long. Are you long. talking
0: about or, the burbs? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm yeah.
4: talking about the burbs. Or Godfather, yeah. Okay. Well, or I mean, you could, yeah. it could apply to both, honestly. Maybe, honestly.
3: maybe the performance changed.
0: Right. No. <laughs> before Jerry was brought on to this i guess i mean he was he was uh, in the plans but before he was actually brought in you made a temp score using a lot of morricone and other composers can you talk about that a little bit
2: so if you if you want to see what we're talking about the, the, in in the in this rare instance the rough cut with the temp score is available uh, on a uh, on a on a blu-ray Shout Select, yeah. From Shout Select, and um, mm-hmm. I, I still to this day can't figure out how, how they managed to get away with using this stuff. I, you, know, uh, <laughs> you were just discussing
7: it earlier of how did they clear the rights for the music to do that.
2: Or I guess maybe they just didn't bother, you know, or they didn't care <laughs> or something, or maybe they thought nobody would recognize right.
7: it. Right, nobody's going to notice. <laughs>
2: but uh, it is actually, and, and, and it's obviously a different cut kind of the movie. It's it's uh, quite a bit longer than the movie that was uh, was released.
1: It won't heal if you keep playing with it. If we'd gone up to the cabin at the lake, I would have had twice as many of these by now, so it's not like anything you said this morning is coming true.
9: Honey, I am very, very proud of you. I think it was very sweet of you and Art to at least make the effort to break the ice with the new neighbors. Now they can never accuse us of being rude or unfriendly because you've taken the initiative. I mean, even if they didn't actually
1: come to the door itself. Thank you, Carol.
2: And um, I, it's it's a very interesting comparison. I, I'm very happy to have it out there. Yeah,
5: I was actually watching that work print yesterday. And one thing I noticed, Marshall, it seemed like some of the choices that you guys made uh, might have kind of given Jerry a, a good sort of tonal guide for, for some of the compositions that he wrote. Uh, you've got that big organ music that you use when the car comes out of the garage. Get
9: down, get down, down. Get down, get down. Get
5: down, get down, get down! And uh, then later, when Henry Gibson is introduced, you've got those kind of twinkly, uh, sort of jangly chimes. Ah, we have guests. Sort of that he would wind up incorporating in the score. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have conversations with him about that? Uh, well, that's, that's
2: why we do temp scores, yeah. uh, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not actually to show to the composer, it's to show it to the studio and to do the previews and all the kind of things that you need to do to show people what movie you've made. Uh, but Jerry uh, was not a big fan of temp scores in general, and particularly temp scores that involved anything that he had written. Uh, and I learned very early on that uh, it was a mistake to include Jerry Goldsmith music in the temp scores, which is, I think, why I ended up with so much Bernard Herman. Uh, and he would be constantly saying, "Not Bernie again!" <laughs> Man, it's really getting hot out here. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, it is getting hot, hard. I tell you what, why don't you, uh, why don't you dig one of your own holes, huh? Well, I was just checking this one, and besides the radio, I was monitoring.
8: You know, you know, this is turning out to be a, a lot more work than we thought it was going to be.
6: Why don't we, why don't we go check the house? It's probably a lot cooler in there. He, he let you get away with two of his cuts in this one. You, uh, he was obviously supposed to quote the patent theme, so he just put in patent.
2: Yo, Steve, man. Hey, what's the halves, dude? You got to come down here today. It's going to be live. No, no, you've got to. Well, something's about to happen. I can't tell you. Yo, Steve, man. Hey, what's the haves, dude? You got to come down here today. It's going to be live.
6: And as you've said many times, Joe, he's always got to write music for a kid on a bicycle, and that was tempted with sticks and stones from Explorers. All right. because it's music for a kid on a bicycle. And Boulder and Bouldergeist well yeah that opens with the kid on, well they a grown-up kid on a bicycle <laughs> yeah. Yeah. they love bicycles
1: Joe shot uh, several scenes kind of as a uh, oh, um, a tribute to Sergio Leone um, and because the characters in the film have these grandiose ideas about themselves the that they're going to save the neighborhood. So um, using some spaghetti Western music made sense. What do we do now, soldier? Well, you heard them say they were going away tomorrow.
7: As soon as that car leaves in the morning,
1: I'm going over the fence, and I'm not coming back till I find a dead body. Nobody knocks off an old man in my
2: neighborhood and gets away with it. Uh, but but it, it it was supposed to show you know uh, it, it was giving the emotional heft that we could to um, the movie so that he could see sort of what we had in mind and it it never failed I mean he always he always did a better score than the temp score uh, but it's also he was really clever at interpolating the kind of feelings that you wanted to get when you put the temp score in.
1: What do we do now, soldier? Well, you heard them say they were going away tomorrow. As soon as that car leaves in the morning, I'm going over the fence, and I'm not coming back till I find a dead body.
8: Hey, one of the Huns came out of the cave. The Huns came out of the cave.
1: Spaghetti Western music made sense. Uh, Not in every scene. It's a great idea, and while you keep them busy,
9: you're not invited.
8: Do this
7: tomorrow, Cal. To relax. Yeah, we'll probably find out more in five minutes of friendly
1: chat than you guys can in a month of snooping around. That's a great idea, and while you keep them busy, you're
9: I'll... not invited.
1: It was fun to do all all the films we've done together. It's been fun to put music in. Um, You know, back in those days, there weren't that many uh, soundtracks commercially available. Uh, So it was really hard to find uh, the type of music that a Joe Dante film needs. And that's why we used a lot of trouble with Harry. They're
9: in there, all right? We're all just standing around.
1: Oh, great. Uh, don't worry, you guys. I can get this. Don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, I, I really appreciate your help. No really No problem. Do. You know, just be careful, though. I mean, it's pretty dangerous with the trip. Yeah, right? yeah, okay. Thanks. Thanks for your advice. Okay. okay. Watch. Hey, be what careful. Else? I'm watching. Ah! Ca- Did you make it? <gasps> I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm okay. Just just throw me over the tools. Ow! <laughs> <laughs> You're in there, all right. We're
9: all just standing around.
1: Oh, great. Don't worry, you guys. I can get this. Don't worry about it. Was one of the few back in the seventies, at least one one of the few albums uh, was Bernard Herrmann's music from the Hitchcock films, which included a suite from A Trouble with Harry. And so you were using the re-recording,
0: yeah, yeah, it's re-recording, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, But by the Burbs, there were a few other soundtracks that uh, that worked. We used some music from Witches of Eastwick. And also some John Addison music uh, from a Amazing Stories episode that Joe directed called The Gribble.
2: That I couldn't get Jerry that, for. It. Yeah, <laughs>
1: that has that quirky kind of um, comedic, but edgy kind of sound. Do you keep a horse in the basement?
9: in the basement
6: i also heard i thought duck you sucker uh, quiet ah!
1: Art's got a gun. Ah. Ah. Quiet. Art's got a gun.
8: I remember uh, one scene in particular where the guys come to get Tom Hanks to come out and play, and you have them coming in with, like, Marconi. And I seem to remember that Jerry was kind of reticent about doing that. Does that ring a bell, Joe? I mean, doing Marconi. Well,
2: he, he he wasn't good at copying marconi and nor nor i think did he ever want to but but when right when when given the the template and saying well this is this is sort of the kind of thing we want he would try to do it without having it sound like he had copied that kind of music right uh and the only the only time it it didn't work was in the scene where they go over to the clopex for the first time and um uh the the, they're they're marching toward the door and there's all these cuts of the different peaceful people's faces and zooming into their eyeballs like more call like in leone and stuff and uh and jerry did this uh we we had we had to tracked it with a piece from my name is nobody
7: let's go
2: which was a, a more movie that Universal happened to distribute at the time, and um, Jerry must have tried three or four different comp- compositions to fit into that space. <laughs> But none of them were as funny as the Morricone because it was it had been it had been cut to that kind of music and it had it hit certain it, hurt, it hit certain notes at certain points and um, and the fact that it was so recognizably not music that you would find in that kind of movie uh, made it very funny and and Jerry finally gave up he said you know I just I this is not going to be as funny with my music as it is with this music so you should probably use this and so we bought it.
0: If I can talk about the new album for a moment, um, this actually includes, for the first time, one of those alternate attempts at uh, that Let's Go cue, uh, a different opening with the Western theme. And it's so very different. So, I guess he was really trying a variety of different approaches. I'm wondering if, because Jerry did sometimes here and there evoke Morricone, Uh, he he did it for uh, Inner Space. doing more of a Morricone sound on that. And he also, um, uh, Joe, Mm. one of your favorite Goldsmith scores, Take a Hard Ride, has some of like the weirder Morricone uh, Western effects in it, like the more avant-garde stuff. Mm but what I don't recall Jerry ever doing is something really over-the-top operatic, like, you know, a final Morricone showdown. Like, that's not the style of any of his Western scoring, um, even outside of Western pictures. So I'm wondering if that's what he, like, felt resistant to, was the the very much operatic, way over-the-top kind of tone of it.
1: I actually talked to him about that, and he said, I can't get that type of sound. We, for a 30 second cue, we'd have to hire a bunch of singers. And a big organ and electric. I'd have to bring in all these extra musicians to get that sound. So it was really the orchestration he couldn't. That
7: makes sense. He couldn't
1: afford
8: it, mm. and we, we had to fly to Italy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Marshall or Joe, do you recall what Jerry's reaction was to the? Um, I think it was Les Baxter music in the temp that you used for the the ceremony.
2: He, he he actually he, he thought it was actually a pretty cool idea. Oh yeah, <laughs> he, I kind of liked it.
0: Les Les Baxter is kind of a an overlooked, underrated, at least as a film composer. I think his his film scores are really good, but he was often doing uh, what like AIP or kind of he, he was doing very like independent low. Well, He's also doing.
2: He was doing. But he's also doing a lot of replacement scores because when AIP would buy an Italian movie or something, they would they would strip the track and they would give it to Les Baxter and he would have to come up with something. Um, and um, I, he's he's actually done some really good replacement scores.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Kritzerland Records put out some. Joe, why would they? Why would they strip the score? Do you know why? Why they? Do they have to?
2: Because I think, particularly in the case of AIP, they were thinking that these scores were they just sounded too European. Oh, okay. uh, And the Mario Bava movies, the the scores were quite a, very Italian uh, and uh, very European sounding, and they wanted to have something. It's not like they were sticking rock songs in there. I mean, they just sure. wanted a more a more um, accessible score easy
6: to connect with for americans kind yeah. of yeah hollywood
2: sound yeah hollywood sound and you got to remember a lot of times these movies were being passed off as not european movies sure they were changing the names of the directors they're changing the names of the actors and trying to pass them oh, off no kidding yeah the, the the initial italian westerns everybody in fistful of dollars the credit for sergio leone is bob roberts <laughs> mm. Because at the time they were doing a lot of like trying to sell things internationally and pass them off as American movies, and particularly with westerns, because you know well, it's a western, of course it's American.
0: <laughs> did they change Morricone's name on that originally too, or did they they actually credit him? Uh, no, that? he he changed he changed his own
2: name. Oh, he was uh, he was well, he was Dan something. I, 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 <laughs> did, yeah, I can't. Remember. He had a he had a couple of synonyms. Yeah, it's so
0: funny. Use. I was wondering if on stuff like Marco Polo or something. It was a matter of the the audio was mixed, and with the Italian studio, have not provided all the elements like would all they the have...
7: stems.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, they have. They had they had export versions uh, that they would dub themselves, and that they had music in, and, and and and. But very often those weren't considered up to snuff, and a lot of times they would just redub all the actors. Uh, and um, and the same thing, and, and that that would obviously include uh, the music. And so uh, sometimes they change all the sound effects. I mean, they did a lot of work. Their their post production uh, on uh, at AIP was was a major part of their business.
0: Well, it's a fun little exotica homage that Jerry did for this film. So I'm glad I'm glad that element was uh, included in the temp score. It turned out well. Marshall, did Jerry make any comment to you, like about your temp track in this case where he, I mean, did he say, oh, wow, you gave me a real, really tough one this time because you had so many disparate elements in it Yeah, or anything like that?
1: He might have during the spotting session. But usually, I mean, from what I remember in the four or five movies we did, um, every time we spotted uh with playing the temp track he would agree yes the music should start here and then there the only changes he would make with kenny hall his music editor because uh the temp temp music you know you you're looking for specific things to hit specific little punctuations and so forth so we had a lot of short cues that would stop and start and stop and start let's uh let's say hello and he would say yeah let's start here and i'll just go all the way through let's uh Let's say hello. Hey. So it end up doing a lot more music than what was in the temp uh, score.
0: It's maybe, you know, I'm sure it's because it was such a varied um, temp track that he was matching against, but uh, it's kind of one of the most impressive meldings of varied elements that I've heard in his entire
5: output.
1: Yeah, he gave each character a separate theme,
0: yet it all kind of
1: works together.
5: I wanted to ask about the the, the use of the the Patton esque material in the score as well. Was that that was Jerry. something you had? That was Jerry's idea? That was all Jerry. Yeah. Wow. Nice.
0: his idea for an in joke? It was. He was a pretty funny guy. <laughs> yeah, I thought I, I thought you had maybe asked him to because um, no,
2: no, 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 no. He he he. It was his. It was his idea, and I I, I embraced it warmly.
0: Joe, when we talked
6: about matinee last last May, one of the things we discussed was how the movie had so much of the Cold War fear in it that Jerry didn't need to score cold warfare he didn't need to emphasize that it was already on the screen is there there's a lot in this score was there any element with the burbs that you felt like jerry also didn't need to emphasize in his score because it was already on the screen in this case
2: well one of jerry's strengths i thought was and you discovered it largely when you were going through the spotting was his uh his his belief in silence uh, and the fact that he trusted silence, and he trusted the fact that there that there are places where there shouldn't be music. And uh, I he said, you know, if, if you've already heard a piece, and then now it's gone silent, you still have that piece in your ear. You still remember what it was, and it still resonates. And it resonates even more strongly if there's nothing else around it except just the rest of the movie. Uh, and uh, so he was never afraid to not score stuff. And it wasn't like, you know, some composer saying, Jesus, I got so much work. Let's, let's not, let's not score this reel at all. Cause it's too much trouble. Right. Um, no, he, he really, he really uh, understood the difference between the highs and lows of having actual music and then having, you know, no music for quite a while. Uh, right. And it was one of his strengths, I think.
8: Patton is a good example. Only 33 minutes of music in the whole film. In a
0: three hour film
6: heard you talking with leonard malton about watching 10 cloverfield lane and you specifically mentioned that they kept scoring the conversations joe that you as a direct you were what joined the movie but you were conscious of the music being overused specifically for dialogue scenes
7: mm-hmm. yeah you make me think of the uh, in the philip lambrose biography he was the original composer on chinatown he accuses jerry goldsmith of laziness by basically <laughs> saying like he barely scored the movie you know, he took the movie <laughs> and he
2: barely
0: scored
2: it. It's a great score. Yeah, it is. And it's a great score because of how
7: how little there is in it.
0: Is the Lambro score much longer? Like it's I like say- forty five.
7: It's that's the other thing, right? Like, if you look at how much actual music's in the movie of Chinatown, it's like fifty minutes, forty something minutes. It's the same as the album of unreleased Philip Lambert music we got. But yeah, but as in his biography, Lambert basically accuses Jerry of laziness and that he didn't score the most important scenes. I don't
6: know if I can turn this into a question, but I know the score to the Burbs better than the film because I've had three CDs of it now and it's been, you know, on repeat play a lot. And now I've seen the work print and both the score and the work print, you know, there's this balance of horror and comedy, but the score... It's a horror score. The Klopex theme is in almost every track. It's more horror overtones than undertones in the music. And the Temp score, the movie played that way too. But I mean, I just rewatched The Burbs Thursday, and the film doesn't play like that, even though all the music is there. That's why I'm asking about emphasizing and underemphasizing, because it's not like Jerry brings music and controls music. The emotion, he seems to know how to blend with what's on screen so that it feels more like a lighthearted comedy with undertones of horror than it feels like a horror movie with undertones of comedy, even though the music plays completely differently on the CD. And again, I don't know how to turn that into a question, (laughs) Um, but I just I'm impressed by that about him. (laughs) More of an observation. really. It is an observation. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, sorry. I'm not the guest.
3: I will say, during the course of this conversation, I did take a look at my Gremlins 2 paperwork, and I'm sorry, I didn't find any takes slated as conducted by Joe Dante. So. <laughs> I, uh, I don't think, I don't think, think that it the, would
8: have been, it been recorded. recorded. I think it might have been Joe, but it, the only way we would know is if the, if the orchestra broke out in laughter and applause. The, no, know, it, there was no applause,
2: there was it, laughter.
8: It, <laughs> no, no. you, no, you, you would have gotten both. You would have gotten both.
5: I actually had a question about um, one of the tracks on this album, and Neil, you might be able to answer it, or maybe somebody who actually worked on the movie could, but there is a track that at the very end labeled Pack Your Bags Film Version, and it concludes with this cheerful piano bit that doesn't sound like anything else in the score. It sounds like he may be riffing on A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which is used earlier in the movie, and then that's what you end the the work print with as well. Yeah.
2: God, I love this street. Uh, It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood.
6: It's a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine?
5: But uh, that piano moment doesn't appear in the actual film. So I was wondering, what, what are we hearing there? What was that intended for, the, the end of the movie in an earlier cut, or or what happened there?
2: Well, Jerry did do, uh, he did write his score uh, based on the cut that's on the, uh, with the temp music, uh, which we then took out to preview. We didn't take it out, we did it at Universal. Uh, and, uh, and the preview went very well until we used the um, Mr. Rogers music again at the end. And um, somebody in the middle of the, of the audience just said, boring. And (laughs) and even, even though it had been a very good screening and people laughed and, you know, uh, as soon as that guy said that all of a sudden, oh, we got to reshoot we have to reshoot the ending that one Gotta guy maybe <laughs> you change the ending if you got a, if you've got nervous executives they they only need the slightest reason that's so sad
7: <laughs> I, I i kind of love the idea that the clopex that it's all you know it all kind of falls apart on tom hanks's character and there was never <laughs> anything going on i love that that was such a great concept
8: what uh, was that uh what was the uh, the ending that you had to reshoot
2: well the the, mean, the ending that's on the uh, on the rough cut is uh, they catch the Cloex and then there's a long scene where they where Henry Gibson explains why they act the way they do and and uh, hmm. uh and um it, it it was fine it's it's very similar to what's in the movie now, except it doesn't have the ambulance scene uh, ah. with the ambulance crashing into the house and uh, we didn't we didn't have that so um. Uh, you know, I, I is it better the way it is? Maybe I don't know. I I mean, know we, we, it... we we shot so many different pieces. we shot we shot stuff where they had, they opened up the trunk and then the garbage men were in the trunk, and then we had a version Oh, where wow, there, there were there <laughs> were cheerleaders in the trunk. um but uh ultimately, we didn't use any of that stuff. And I had all those outtakes on a VHS and I was gonna put it into the uh, into some some video release at some point and I, I i took it to a small mom and pop vhs place uh to get it transferred to so that i'd have more than one copy and 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 to save money i brought a, a reel of stock footage of of new york and accidentally the uh the guy the guy transferred the stock footage of new york Twice and over the oh, no. over the outtakes oh, that I brought up, so uh, I didn't. It was it was gone. It was just, it was just gone. Brutal. Hmm. So that taught me a lesson about if you're going to have something transferred, buy a new tape. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, <laughs> but uh, also, don't take it to that place, which is, of course <laughs> is closed. Oh um, God. Uh, anyway it, 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 there were a bunch of different endings but we ended up with the one we've got and people seem to like it so it's fine
7: oh it's a good ending i mean i, I love the movie i just think just tom H- everybody just being wrong about the Klopex to me was a perfect ending that was so. the
2: original idea and they were afraid yeah. to do it yeah
0: because of one doofus yeah
1: <laughs> in the original script the original script ending uh tom hanks <clears throat> gets carted away in the ambulance by the clo- clopex
2: to die <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as they hired tom they said well, we can't, can't kill, kill Tom. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> yeah, apparently he can't go to prison either
6: so if you have a writer strike i know you had the writer on set not writing he was just pl- he played the one of the cops well he
2: was in he was in one scene i i like to have i like to have the writer there if possible yeah. but you can't justify it except past one scene because of if they're if they're working as an actor uh so that's why we shot it in sequence that's because we figured we could improv our way out of things
6: so yeah who how do you if you don't have legally the ability to write who comes up with the endings do you guys just make stuff up on the set and work it out or
2: well, it's it's a there's yeah. a there's a tremendous amount of improvisation in that movie probably more than i've ever done Yes, sir. and it's partly because the actors were very funny and one and when you're doing it in sequence you can improv toward the end of the picture oh i see and anything you improv can actually be improved on as opposed to improving and shooting out of sequence where the improv is maybe nice but like in new york new york there's some great improvs but they don't fit into the movie because they were shot before the scenes that they're that follow them that don't make that don't follow with the improv
6: did you cast based on the need to have improv or was it the other way around that you were just lucky to have the right people
2: no, no, no. We just, people. we just cast to find the best people. But uh, as it turned out, the people that we had were very bright and they were, they, it was, it, it was a, an ensemble feel. It, it didn't, it wasn't like Tom Hanks was the star and everybody else was revolving around him. I mean, it really was an improv, right? Uh, an ensemble movie. And, um, you know, the, the improvs were based on why is Tom uh not going to work is he and at, in in the improv he's lost his job and he didn't he didn't tell his wife oh. and his, his, in the dream sequence his boss comes and then and, and talks to him about how he fired him hmm. uh all of that Kevin saying, McCarthy. yeah and, it, and I called Kevin one day I said Kevin I I, I need a favor I, I need a, I need Tom Hanks's boss to come and fire him in a dream sequence and he said well uh, what color tie do you want me to wear <laughs> uh and and so he came we did the scene it's not in the movie it's a, but it is oddly enough uh preserved in the 10th version
4: ray ray peterson ah there you
7: are ray
5: step into my office please
7: i do have a non-music related question about that how does hanks do that weird slide down the front steps of the house after the explosion it's just something he did
2: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but that was a real explosion. I mean, he must have felt the heat. Mm-hmm.
6: You know, when I watched it again Thursday, that something that's never hit me before that struck me this time is the Burbs is, is is the first movie, even though the ending subverts it it's the first way to at least contain the real the proper moral conclusion to i am legend of any film ever made because three times i am legend has been made and it doesn't end right and tom (laughs) hanks giving that speech about
1: you leave them alone get out that case already they didn't do anything to us they didn't do anything to us all right so they're different so they keep it themselves can you blame them they live next door to people who break into their house and burn it down while they're gone for the day!
4: Remember what you were saying about people
1: in the burbs art? People like Skip, people who mow their lawn for
8: the 800th time
1: and then snap? Well, that's us! It's not them! That's us! We're the ones who are vaulting over the fences and peeking into people's windows! We're the ones who are throwing garbage in the street and lighting fires. We're the ones who are acting suspicious and paranoid. Eyes. We're the lunatics. Us. It's not them.
6: It's us. There's my I am legend ending. <laughs> even though he gets it flipped on him. Yeah.
2: I still think the first one was the best one, even though it's you know obviously a low budget movie. Vincent Price. It's closer than the book than any any of the others.
0: What other uh, memories do you have of uh, Jerry working on this score, and perhaps the sessions themselves? Can you can you share any reactions he had to the film? Or
2: uh, I did so many that, it, that they tend to blur into you know one massive experience. Um, um, I it, it, it was it was just always so fascinating to watch him with his uh, with his musicians.
8: <laughs> One,
0: two, three, the D, to D, to D, Yeah, they're an active above you, though. Yeah.
2: And this scores the first minor second you're asking about. Tell me if you had D flat, would it have made a difference? And uh, the, uh, the long relationships he had with certain uh, musicians who would reappear uh, at sessions all the time. Yes, on your note, yeah, you the B. Oh
0: yeah, I wrote it. Is it? Is it? Get ready to run, John.
9: That's all right, Sidney. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
2: they're off. They're running? This gentleman, Not dressed properly time, to a date. Time, three, this three, three, this three, gentleman three, wears three, a tie three, every year, <coughs> year after year to a
0: I date. It's
2: a side tie. There come, he comes. Proper, he looks a proper gentleman. And um, uh, his... Uh, I, I, his unfailing happiness at doing his, what he did was it was infectious pretty
8: good for a first go at it I'll well, take 10 it was really good
5: <laughs> well there'll have to be a take 119
2: and it was and it was hard work i mean it was and it was and sometimes things didn't work correctly the first time and then he would have to he and Arthur would work on it and try to try to change it and sometimes it was based on something I said but also sometimes it was just he would he would just look at the sheets and he would play it and then he he, and then he would scratch his head and there was something wrong and he'd start writing and uh, I mean he, he, he worked he it was he was a workhorse I mean he really did work but but he he did it because he loved it and it was infectious.
9: Jerry Goldsmith is somebody we really like working for because he's just the governor, really. He's fantastic.
2: So shh, everybody except the trumpets, repeat bar three. Yeah. What the hell was that? That was good. What was that? It was, it. Who did that? Who hey. oh, It me. Well, what was it?
7: Which sound, sound is that? The same one you've been using? Yeah.
1: Thank you all very much. Three okay,
6: blood. Please.
0: Were there any tricky things with the sessions on this? Since you had such, I mean, there are some unusual instruments. Like, how did it work, Bruce, with the the organ being incorporated? Was that recorded with the orchestra, or was it done separately? <laughs>
8: No, the the organ was done simultaneously, and it was electronic. It wasn't a pipe organ. At Fox, we had a pipe organ. Um, But it was the only stage in town that had a pipe organ, but uh, Universal didn't, and it was electronic. And when I listened to the score this week and then watched the film, I I was impressed because I I hadn't been there in a while. Uh, And what a good sample we had you know it just worked beautifully
0: it sounds very mm-hmm. imposing you know it doesn't sound like it's uh <laughs> i guess a sort of a fake um <laughs> organ it sounds like the real deal well there were
8: a lot of times when we do things uh, because it might have been a sample uh, or a synth that was just very two dimensional it was very flat didn't have any depth it didn't didn't work with the orchestra so sometimes We'd play it back into the room on a mix and pick it up on the microphone so that it it had the same three dimensional space as the rest of the orchestra. so it would work together. And I wouldn't be surprised if we did a little bit of that here
2: worldizing.
0: Marshall and Bruce, do you recall any comments um Jerry made about work about the film or uh, that he might have made during the sessions about this project?
8: he was having no he was always having a good time and he looked for the interaction you know with 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 joe and marshall that especially when they do a long cue and they go look at it you know together and then you know there might be a change or another a visualization like i i never saw that before and i've been looking at it for two months you know and uh a change would be done but Jerry was having a ball. He just loved making jo- uh, movies with Joe. I was going to
1: uh, to go back to the burbs and the percussion, the jingly, jangly percussion.
8: Hmm. Was that,
1: Bruce, can
8: you remember, was that all done on a synthesizer? No, he, Jerry used to love to, to go to, uh, oh God, I am
0: not Engel Richards. <sighs>
8: Amel Richards, thank you very Uh,
2: uh, Every time. As you guys get older,
8: (laughs) this will happen to you. It's a promise. (laughs) Um, Jerry used to go to Amel's warehouse, and Amel had the most amazing space and collection of instruments from all over the world that he had collected. And they go through ahead of time, because when he was putting together the concept in his head, orchestrally, what it was going to do, he And he was always wanted new sounds. He didn't want to repeat himself if he could help it. And so a lot of what you're hearing are things that he would come up with with Emil hmm. and then integrate it into the score. So they were played live.
6: So what's making that noise, So that jangly sound? Do you remember what that was? I'd
8: have to go to the multitracks and look it and, and break it out. Do you still have them, Neil?
3: Uh, I think Mike has them. I'm I'm looking at the paperwork right now and it says percussion,
0: it says chimes and vibes. Uh-huh. It's a weird, weird sort of chime. I mean, it's not like what you normally think of as chimes. It
6: sounds like struck chimes, doesn't it?
4: uh Amel, the way Amel works, though, it's like he he would have, you know, this enormous warehouse. Composers would go in and you just it's like a a tool, a toolbox. And it's like Disneyland. I mean, it's like you're just playing and you're coming up with these crazy sounds. And Amel was like. I, 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 you know, had good fortune to see him at a lot of recording sessions. And he always whenever he got to do something that wasn't just regular percussion, he had this grin on his face, because for him, it was it's playtime. And he would do things that, you know, it looked like a little bowl or whatever, and he would do something to it. And it would sound not normal. It, w- it would be an in, not to say human sound, but it would just be an unnatural sound that he's able to get out of these, these objects that, so I, I, I have no idea what sound it was that made the sound for the burbs, but I bet it looked different than you would think it looked like if you saw the instrument that he used to make the sound.
1: Jerry utilized a lot of Emil Richards um, percussion sounds in um, Planet of the Apes. Specifically.
4: Yeah. Those are the mixing bowls.
1: Yeah, all the all that stuff. I wanted to buy uh Emo Richards uh,
2: Boobam. I met him on Twilight Zone because that there, yeah. there was that was a, a, a cartoon score basically, and and he had all these strange objects that he brought in. And it, it, it it looked like he'd just gone down to the corner and, and and gone to a hawk shop and and got a bunch of stuff, uh, but it all it all made noises. <laughs> all stuff that was you know put into the that's 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 the first time i was uh employed in uh, in the orchestra doing stuff yeah (laughs) oh you played along i well i i could do the siren i could i mean there was (laughs) just a a whole lot of it was like i'm a magician's warehouse you know uh and he was and he was a, a very fun guy jerry loved him he was, was on almost all the sessions that I did with Jerry.
6: When that cartoon stuff in Twilight Zone, I mean, I as a, well, I would have been 13 when that was out. So not quite uh, avant-garde in my musical styles, but that cartoon music always worked as music for me. didn't sound like just a bunch of random junk falling down the stairs that's what's nice about it is you know he if he went to the junk store and brought that stuff in he clearly knew what to use and what not to use and when to use it because i can hear the sounds and i can't imagine the notation but i imagine there (laughs) had to have been some notation in somebody's head for how those play and when they play
9: yeah
0: amel is such an important collaborator of goldsmiths over many many decades and um and it actually reminded me joe of uh an episode of your podcast I heard recently. I want to thank you for so much. Uh, with uh, You interviewed Bear McCreary.
6: No, he interviewed them.
0: <laughs> yeah,
7: Bear's <laughs> was very excited.
0: Yeah, such a great podcast episode you did, Joe. Um, but one of the things Bear McCreary brought up is the collaborative process that happens. And like, it's not just the composer, it's the composer interacting with the director and the edit i mean however much they want to get involved the director and the editor and also musicians and emil richards is one of the most important ones i can think of of you, you know a case of jerry didn't necessarily have an idea but a, a weird sound or a weird um you know a, a unique element of mm-hmm. one of his scores would come up through conversations and the back and forth with musicians like emil richards yep that experimentation that happens, that exploration. Uh, in many ways, there is a romanticization of uh, film composition as being a solitary practice. And sometimes it is. I mean, sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes you just have Bach, you know, <laughs> writing down notes in, in, in private. You know, there, there's this idea that it's a very private thing, but I think there's also uh, a degree of collaboration that occurs Maybe particularly more so in film music because it is part of a collaborative art form and it's and it's joining a film. It's not like the composer is the, the only uh, person that needs to be pleased by it. So, uh, you know, it's really interesting to think about how in some of our favorite Goldsmith scores or scores by any composer, what elements really were affected by other creative people in the process.
9: Mm-hmm.
1: My only other remember, uh, what I remember from the scoring state st- is walking in just as they recorded the end title music and I was just blown away. I couldn't believe how, how great it was.
0: Oh yeah, cause he, he reprises everything in that and it makes it flow together. Like it's an encapsulation of the varied score um, concentrated into just a few minutes.
1: Working on a on a film for like nine months, and then at the end of the whole thing, you it's like it, I felt like a kid on Christmas morning, you know, you'd hear the final score, and it was always just an elation kind of
2: it was definitely something to look forward to, and uh, even uh, even in the midst of shooting, you're just you know, Jerry will save it. That's all we kept saying. Oh, it's okay, Jerry will save it. <laughs> let's let's move on mm <laughs>
0: do uh really quick when while we have this panel here um, I want to ask folks for their their memories of uh Looney Tunes back in action because we've actually got four people who were here at those sessions uh Marshall Joe Bruce and uh, Dan was actually there as well um just I, I know it may be the uh, some tough memories because Jerry was not doing so well at the time but can you? Share any of those with us. What it was like working with Jerry on his last film score?
2: Well, you would never know that he wasn't doing well if you didn't already know it. Uh, he didn't. It didn't affect his work. It didn't affect his relationship with the with the uh, with the musicians. Uh, it certainly didn't affect the music, which is, I think, a, a, a heroically great score for a movie that's so compromised. But um, he, he, he finally, we were, we finally got to a point where, because we were doing it sort of in sequence, and we finally got to a point where Jerry just said, you know, I, I I'm afraid I can't do any more of this, and uh, and so he brought in his friend John Debney, who came in and, and, and scored the last reel and a half, I think, of the movie. Um, but up to then, I mean, he was uh, obviously diminished in the sense that he was in pain, but he was. You just professionally, you just would never have
5: noticed. And you can't hear it in the music at all. That's that's <laughs> such cheerful and lively and joyous music all the way mm-hmm.
9: through. It's true. <laughs>
6: and adventurous.
0: it sounded like something a young up-and-comer, you know, 20-something-year-old composer would write, like John Powell or something at the time, with all of these uh, wacky hijinks. It's it's almost like an even more burbsy score than the burbs because it's <laughs> it's got all of these disparate elements and and uh, you know he, he he had Sally Stevens imitate a theremin uh, for for that cue and he he got to go back to his western roots with uh, the Yosemite Sam music and it, it, it's kind of almost like there 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 are science fiction elements of it. Um, it's, it's almost like a love letter to uh, his career and, and Hollywood in some ways. And of course he's, he's, he's doing Carl Stalling while still sounding like Jerry Goldsmith. These things that only somebody at the top of their craft could manage to do, but it doesn't sound like something um, someone near the end of their life would write. It, it sounds like a, somebody hungry to impress. You know, they've just started out in the industry and they're they're just throwing everything they can at it.
2: I know, it's amazing. It's one of his most vibrant scores, and uh, and he wrote it under the worst circumstances.
8: doing. He, he wasn't going to stop until uh, he got stopped.
0: Bruce, do you re- recall any uh, conversations Jerry had with you about that was it his decision to it was his decision to bring on John Depney or I thought it was something to do with I mean am I remembering I this? think yeah. I think it had to do with um, I thought it was maybe Robert Townsend No, Robert Kraft. Richard Craft Richard Kraft.
6: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They,
0: they, you know, there
8: we go again. And I, there were, he was, um, John is represented by Richard. And it just seemed to be right. It, but it was really so strange because Jerry did the morning session. John showed up with his guy and sat there during the, the, the session. And then Jerry announced the orchestra that John was going to, take over from after lunch and jerry said goodbye and left and then the change was enormous emotionally you know at least for me it was huge i'm sure it was for joe too and uh because he said to me he says i just i've run out of gas i i can't do it and that was it
4: i was there for two days um just to fly on the wall really uh like not doing the photo thing that I was doing later and all that stuff. But um, I was there for Jerry's last day and then for Debney's first day, uh, I guess the the second day that John came back. Um, mm. And there was a point, I think, just when they were breaking for lunch on that second day, Jerry came back. Mm. And I because rem- I remember he was just in the back at Todd o., not in the booth, but in the orchestra area. And when they broke for lunch, people were coming up to him he was because he was hanging out in the back and I just remember you know like because it was a it was a weird thing to be at a goldsmith session but John Debney's conducting you know and John wrote music and you know it's 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 just it was you know because I just saw Jerry conducting the other day I wasn't there for the whole day it was just me popping in so to suddenly see Debney there but then Jerry's in the back and then a lot of musicians were coming up to him so sort of like I'd say "pay respect" is a weird word or weird phrase to use, but it really felt very deferential, and like they just really wanted—they wanted to go see Jerry, you know. In the
8: history of, of Jerry or of composers for film, uh, he's the only one that all the musicians got together and had a big dinner, and they—they uh, they had T-shirts, they had hats. I have one of the hats with a white ponytail which is you are one of us we're one of you you know and uh they loved him absolutely loved him i never saw it with any other composer that kind of relationship that he had cuz he loved to throw candy across the orchestra to the to catch in the tuba you know things like that
0: <laughs> so dan, dan were you saying that john debney was conducting some of goldsmith's
4: music or no 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 i i just mean, his own yeah like debney was conducting the debney music but um i wasn't there for the full day like i wouldn't show up at you know 9 a.m and leave at 5 i I'd, I'd pop in um for like a couple hours like to you know because i had a job <laughs> back then um and it, it was like just to me it was like oh this is you know jerry conducting and that you know that's awesome and i'm there for a couple hours and fly on the wall and then i lay it left and the next day i come in and oh debney's conducting oh what's going like this is like it to me it was just like a unexpected it was a surprise yeah because you know i was going to the jerry goldsmith session at todio for looney tunes and i'd show up and then there's john debney conducting and it's like where's jerry it's like i mean i wasn't complaining i was you know again fly on the wall just hanging out in the back but then when they broke for lunch it was like oh jerry's here and all the musicians were like you know, he was by the door. So to leave the stage, you'd have to go by Jerry. So everyone's kind of like paying, not paying tribute again, I I probably have the wrong phrase I'm using. But it was just very respectful. And, you know, everyone wanted to say hi, and how are you doing? And, you know, I'm glad you're here. And, you know, as they're all leaving for lunch.
0: I I feel like Jerry was probably very private and didn't want to, you know, worry people or bother people or something like that. But I remember it was You know, there were some rumors about his health, but it was a it was a surprise um, when when he passed away to a lot of people. And uh, I mean, I I wonder if like there weren't any um, you know people coming to these because they knew they they knew they were going to be his last sessions or anything like that. There weren't people visiting to to, you know, see him and say goodbye or anything like that. Right. That that wasn't the tone.
4: Well, no, I mean, think about, it. I mean, the recording, I don't remember the exact dates. I don't know if, uh, you know, Joe and Bruce and Marshall, if you do, but it was like, the movie came out in November of 2003. I think they were scoring in October. Does that sound about right? It's the fall. Yeah. And, and, and it was, but it, you know, Jerry didn't pass until July the following year. So it wasn't like, you know, it was the end. It was just, you know, he was, he was tired.
0: I'm tired you know? for this.
4: Yeah, for this project. Yeah, like pe- 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 people didn't know. I don't think people knew. I don't think he knew.
0: But he still. I mean, he always put his all into everything. So, <laughs> well, that but
2: that he, was he, that was the thing. I mean, he 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 was becoming increasingly exhausted, and and he wasn't meeting his standard uh, of what he was able to contribute. And uh, ordinarily, I think he would have ordin- he would have he would he would have plowed through. He only had a reel and a half left to go, uh, but. Uh, and to get to a a point where you you can't do your work to the satisfaction of yourself, but. Uh, I understand why he uh, why he decided not to. It was it was it was a shock. But on the other hand, it wasn't. It, we were sort of hoping he was going to be able to get through it, okay? Because it, it was quite, Mike Finale and I were quite aware of you know what his medical situation was before.
0: And he he was both a perfectionist and a workaholic. So you know, I'm sure because this was a project for you, Joe, he made a special effort to you know push himself and. And he really wanted to work with you again. I'm sure he didn't want to miss that opportunity. Uh, I,
2: I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that I'm sure that was part of it, and uh, because we really did have a, a great relationship, and, and I, I know he felt that he was probably letting me down by not being able to finish the picture. But of course, I disabused him of that notion as quickly as possible.
0: And, and I'm sure he also wanted to spend some time with you. He, you know, he considered you and and marshall i'm sure and and others friends and this was another opportunity you know maybe he maybe he knew it was the last opportunity or maybe he didn't but he probably didn't want to pass that up he he liked working he liked the the process yeah
2: he, he did i i don't think he thought he was going to be doing a lot of other pictures but you've got to remember around this time uh his timeline score was being thrown out um, and and again, I'm sure they would have come back to him and said, you know, they made so many cuts in timeline that they just couldn't use the music that existed. And I'm sure he probably would have been asked to come back, but uh, there was just no way he was going to redo a, a whole score. And also, it is you know, when you're in that when you're at that stage of your life, to have an entire score thrown out uh, is it's it's not life affirming. <laughs>
3: just to take a look i I looked it up looney tunes was recorded in september 2003 and october with two dates in october
4: 2003 thanks neil yeah i think it was it must have been the october dates at least that i attended then
3: that that was at the end that would make sense because those were you know sequential october 4th and 5th
0: well the last reel was a reshoot the last reel of the film was a reshoot
2: well, it was a, it was a it was it was it was a it was a recut and a reshoot because it didn't end up in a, it, the movie didn't end in outer space originally.
7: Oh, uh, all the Marvin the Martian stuff is new. It ended in the jungle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and
2: uh, with a giant tweety bird that eats and, and eats Steve Martin. It was it was pretty funny, I thought. Uh, but um, they just couldn't leave it alone so they just they kept throwing more and more money at this picture which which uh, they had no faith in at all and didn't want to make originally uh and uh, so i guess you know it, it, the idea of you know jerry thought he was doing one kind of music for the entire movie and then this this whole new reel and a half comes up and it was sort of like um well, you know not only not only isn't this exactly the movie i started to to write for, but now now it's a, now it's a different movie, and, and, and this is probably a good time for me to hand it off.
1: And then the picture opened the same
0: day as Elf. Oh, oh it right. did. <laughs> got killed. Oh. Hmm. John John Debney was competing against himself. Yeah. <laughs> what is what is he
6: when John Debney gets brought aboard, and of course he's got to finish a score somebody else started. Uh, does he, did he mostly talk with Jerry? Did he talk with you guys about how do you want to do the
2: rest of this? Uh, he talked with he, t- he talked with with us, but he also talked to Jerry. Did he? Uh, and and Jerry was there for the one session. Uh, and I have I have pictures of, of them together. Oh, nice. uh, and it was all it was all very copacetic. And John is a smart guy, and he loved Jerry's music, and he knew the kind of thing he was asked to do. He wasn't doing a John Demney score; he was trying to do a, a Jerry Goldsmith score right. uh, as best he could. And, and 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 I think when people watch the movie, they don't really see any change in the in the quality of the music as the picture goes on. No, I agree.
0: There was one other composer, um, Cameron Patrick, who came in I think he maybe he redid some cues like the the Roadrunner cues He had written a dissertation on uh, Jerry Goldsmith's score to Star Trek the Motion Picture which is really good and uh, it was my understanding that he did some of the kind of Looney Tunesy stuff.
2: I don't have any. I don't have any memory of that.
8: Mm. I, I do. He was. He was. He was specific. To certain things that that were closer uh, to the original concept,
7: Coyote and Roadrunner. Yeah,
0: Mark McKenzie oh. was involved too. I think. Right, he was one of the orchestrators. He did some arrangements. He was arranging some of the, the classical music. I think.
8: He yeah. did, he was yeah he did those orchestrations because Alexander Courage, Jerry would a lot of times and he did it on Matinee where with Mant. Where he had uh, Sandy write the the B horror movie cues.
0: Marshall actually constructed the MANT score with an old LP, but what Alexander Courage did was the shook up shopping cart.
2: Right. Right.
0: What did he did he actually try scoring MANT too?
2: No, the matte music is all uh, is all from old Universal uh, Pictures. Uh, but shop- okay. Shook Up... Sh-
8: well, it was one of the films I remember he did that.
2: Shook Up Shopping Cart is it a separate Disney-esque kind of thing, and Alex Alex might have done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
6: At this point, Dan Goldwasser displayed on our Zoom chat the first of two pictures taken during the Looney Tunes back-in-action recording sessions, this one being of two cars in a parking lot.
4: That's a, I, I just checked. That's the one photo I took from that day, which is, I guess, Debney drove the Ferrari to the <laughs> stage. I didn't take any pictures on the inside, though. So but I apparently did have my camera with me. Go figure.
2: Wow. And and you saved that
0: picture of all
4: pictures. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I've got Joe, I've got like 22 years of photos. He's, he's got a website <laughs> all about photos
0: from from various film music sessions. So it must be a car. Buff. I
4: think I think I was just I was just really impressed with the car. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, so. No, I, yeah. I
8: was going to say Ken Hall and I stood outside and looked at the trunk. I mean, you know, the the, the hood over the uh, engine, and it was glass. And it was like, wow. Oh, yeah. There it is. Wow.
6: Dan's next picture can be found in the liner notes of the most recent Looney Tunes back in action score release. This one featuring a gaggle of people sitting in front of the mixing board, including a comparatively bequipped Bruce Botnick.
8: My God, it has hair!
4: <laughs> yeah, no that, that that that's the the photo that they found um, from the scoring session, where uh, I mean you even have you know Eric Goldberg is there yeah. the, the, the animator right. and um, you know Joe you're there and Tara and Mark McKenzie. Uh, There's Mark, yeah, there. yeah. No, you mentioned Mark. It's like oh yeah, I have a, I have the picture of that, and then <laughs> skinny me off in the background, but whatever.
0: I know it must have been hard, but I'm really glad that Jerry got to do do that final score with um people he loved working with and (laughs) he got to be so creative and you know it's i'm glad this was his final score instead of timeline that would have been quite a bummer you know to have your final score thrown out Mm -hmm. so he he went out on a strong note yeah uh change gears and uh, talk a little bit more about the uh the new burbs album just just uh, to wrap things up i will
1: mention my, my uh, i will mention my favorite moment of jerry's score in the burbs and that's the introduction of henry gibson there's something in the flutes that are like fluttering or something and it it's chilling and also very funny
6: Does anyone else have favorite moments in the score?
4: Uh, I think my favorite's um, the ambulance, the bit at the end with the ambulance. The, uh, the nightmare dream sequence with the yes, uh, the female so, the female soprano. <laughs> just always got me with like the tribal rhythms and you know it was just it was just so just great
1: and i noticed in in this release that um devil worship (laughs) the film version does not have the vocal
3: Right, so when they're watching when he's watching it on TV. Nice.
6: Very, very nice. So let me get this straight. The Klopex are offering up Walter as a sort of human sacrifice
1: to Beelzebub, is that it?
4: And that's and it's playing on the TV? There's no vocal. Does that mean, Neil, you have the vocal as a completely separate stem? You can make a ringtone.
9: Ooh. <laughs>
0: My favorite moment in the score, by the way, I think, is the one you left out, because the the opening of Let's Go with the gunshots. That's just another example of, of Jerry just being so silly and over the top as he puts literal gunshots in the in the score. <laughs> it's just so audacious and hilarious.
4: Maybe Neil could uh I mean, if if Neil wanted to mention it, how the the fact that we even went looking for the two inch tapes came about, because originally LaLand La was just gonna do a reissue of the album that had already come out previously. I don't know if that's something worth talking about.
3: I can I can talk yeah, so a, um, a year or so ago Universal put out the score to the Burbs digitally. So you could listen to it on, you know, Spotify or Kobuz or whatever. And before they put it out, I was asked to just go through and make sure is this okay? And I was like, okay, I'll take all, you know, it's just a courtesy. Um, and I had access to the Burbs' dat, so I transferred the dat Put it into Pro Tools, put their audio into Pro Tools, looked at them and went, yeah, everything on this dat is accounted for, so this is everything, go go for it. And then Dan said, you know, it turned into a project for La La Land and now it's like, okay, let me see what this really is, this, you know, this is an actual job. And I took the dat and I put it up against the movie and I was like, okay, well that's missing, this is different uh th- something needs to be done with this it was and it was a whole thing and it, so at first it just turned into a little expansion it was like well we can we can do this we can do you know because there are a few little bits and pieces on the that that weren't uh like we, we could do the the film version of i guess uh the window then it turned into like well wait there's there's more stuff missing and so then we did the search and it was like oh here's everything
0: so that that's when you found out certain things had been mislabeled on the original album like uh was it no lights was it was confusing the, the dat
3: um was a strange was was strange in that there was there wasn't any documentation with the dat it was literally a dat, and the card just said the burbs so it didn't say you know 1m1, one 1m2, one 1m3. One didn't didn't say any of that. And on top of that, there were no vocal slates on the dat. <laughs> so it would just be main title the window. Let me let me make sure I'm not getting this wrong. So yeah, it'd be main title, then a take of the window, then another take of the window, then home delivery, you know, it just and it, it went through the score chronologically but without any any identification. And so I think when you got to that section of home furnace and no beer and no lights, whatever it, it, things got wonky. And I was like, Oh, you know, it didn't make sense to me what was going on. And it, that was also cleared up once we got the two inch one. We oh, well that's this and this and that it was misidentified, but you, it was difficult to identify anything because it wasn't identified on the tape.
2: That's all Bruce's fault.
3: No, I would <laughs> Now,
8: jury <laughs> no, had you retitle everything. If you remember,
3: well, <laughs> as, as a matter of fact, with, with the two inch tapes we're, bruce's paperwork and that was pristine
0: <laughs> oh so bruce is is largely responsible for everything being correct now is he <laughs> well I, I think <laughs> we
8: didn't we record this at Taddeo, or did we do it at so
3: at fox i can't remember
2: no is it was at universal this uh, was we did the, we did that pickup at universal for sure
3: the whole the whole session was at universal
2: yeah i thought so yeah, yeah.
8: no kidding
3: yeah wow that was a wonderful studio, I enjoyed that place. But like, I'm, lo- I'm looking at the paperwork now, and it says Bruce Botnick Productions Incorporated with the Pacific Palisades Address and Dolby SR. I your, was younger then. Your whole track layout, yeah. oh, it was it was great. <laughs> it was like, oh, that's everything, there it is. Wow. Bru- Bruce, did you record at Universal often? And can you talk about that stage a little? Because I don't recall seeing many projects from that stage.
8: It's three did this one, Mr. Baseball. The second Psycho.
0: Oh, interesting! Remake that Jerry did. Oh, that was uh, that was Elfman, wasn't it? No, or Psycho, two? Psycho, Psycho Two. two. Psycho, Psycho Two. Psycho Two. Richard Franklin. <laughs> You're right, yeah, Richard yeah. Franklin. No, I was I was just thrown off by the remake. Yeah,
2: there was no remake. Just forget about that. <laughs> it didn't exist. I remember that scoring session because uh, I, I, in the middle of it, I had to get a root canal. <laughs> Wow. I, was, wow. I was biting into a potato chip or something and then I got this terrible pain in my in my mouth and it turned out that I had this abscessed tooth, which I didn't even know about until it, it, it reared its ugly head and I had to leave the scoring session and go directly to the dentist.
0: Of all the times for that to happen, I potato know. chip.
2: <laughs> so I've, a I've sworn off potato chips.
0: In
8: those same sessions, I remember... I was collapsing. I was exhausted. For some reason, I couldn't figure out. And Mike Fennell got Dr. Feelgood to come in and give me a shot, a B-12 shot. And then I was like, yeah. Let's go for the society. I'll never forget that. I didn't know that, that those guys were real, but they were.
2: Oh, yeah, they are real. And still in use.
8: <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> Did you guys tell that uh, Universal? With with Varney, Bill Varney, and the guy. Uh, yeah. I I dubbed with Bill
2: Varney uh, when he was at Goldwyn. I don't think I worked for right. Universal.
8: Yeah, was it dubbed at Universal or did, did do it? Oh, Goldwyn? was it mixed at Universal? I thought yeah. maybe
2: it was mixed. So at uh, Radford, ah, uh, on that stage that used to be an ice rink. Yeah, um,
8: <laughs> yeah
2: I, I I think I think we I think we mixed the movie there.
8: Well, you know, uh, what's really interesting is uh, going back and doing a lot of stuff in Atmos for immersive, you know, streaming now. It's uh, 714, you know, four on the ceiling and seven on the floor plus a LFE. And when I open up a score and spread it out, yes, it's the same, but it's a whole new take. I mean, people hear things, I hear things that I never even knew were there. And uh, so this is going to happen as we move forward. When some of these scores are done in Atmos, people are going to ha- have a whole new experience, and that's when I want to put it up against picture, because you know we were we approached things differently thirty and forty years ago than we do now.
4: You know, is, is Atmos at releases there, seem to be more and more like happening more and more, and I understand from a mixed perspective you know that's one thing but how do you master in atmos i mean isn't that a whole other level of technical issues
8: you mix in atmos and that's your final product and it's just a matter of assembling
4: oh so you don't actually you don't you don't master it really no in terms of how mastering would have been done for stereo no it's
8: it's totally untraditional okay it's a it's a whole new world for all of us i mean i brought Neil in, but I just finished uh, seven of the animated Disney features that we did going back with Aladdin and Mermaid and, you know, on and on. And that took almost a year to do to get them, because we had to match the original release, album release from 30 and 40 years ago, and lots of elements were missing. It It was massive undertaking so and then putting things so that you all of a sudden it's like when you're in a theater and I know Joe Joe understands this you've got the rectangle in front and you don't want to have things starting to pop all around or, or up on the top to take your mind off of what you know what's going on. So to, to uh, repurpose these these shows, is like it's a whole different experience it's like reliving from the first time and it's it's really kind of cool i'm really i'm really enjoying it and i and in fact i did a search last night to both title title and apple to look to see what kind of motion picture scores are out there there's very little out there right now but i have a feeling that it's going to come
5: bruce i know it in the field of classical music and also in rock music, we've had some of these Blu-ray releases that have an Atmos mix of different things. Mm-hmm. Do you see that as being something uh, that could happen in the realm of film music at some point? No. Not enough interest for that?
8: All the record companies are adverse to physical these days. I mean, they really are. Uh, they, they're, they're happy with vinyl because they do between five and 15,000 copies. And vinyl actually is making money where CDs aren't. There's, getting CDs made these days is, is a Herculean task to get a company to agree to do it. I mean, the stuff that Neil's been doing on like this release of The Burbs is, you know, with La La Land and uh, Varese and it's, you know, that's what they do. And they're not doing that much streaming, but that's where it's at.
0: This is this is something Dan knows a lot about with uh, yeah. the Orville. I know.
4: <laughs> yeah, everything is streaming these days, and while streaming, as it's uh, you know, the benefits are you're not constrained to 80 minutes on a disc. You know, you can do a four and a half hour long release if you wanted. Um, but the downside again is that there are purists and people out there who want the physical product, and I can't blame them when you see something like Looney Tunes. Um, you know, Warner Media, Warner Discovery just removed 16 seasons of classic Looney Tunes off of HBO Max. It's gone. I, I was on season 17 of 30 36. I was working my way through them and then suddenly it's just gone. And it it was streaming. So it's like, what? why not have it on there? And oh, well, there's some legal rights issue. It's like, you own it. It's like, you're the same company that owns it. I don't, it, it's just, by physical media, you know, I mean, it's, they can't, you know, my internet can go down. I can watch the burbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
7: that's true. Or at least digital downloads that you own. On, yeah. You know? Yeah. That's uh, I've been doing a lot of Cobas lately for that reason. Cause they seem to have the most in terms of the soundtracks I would want.
4: Yeah. And Co- Cobas also does high res audio, which is nice. Yeah,
7: exactly. And it's, it's nice to be able to get that stuff.
4: Yeah. In so high actually, res,
7: like Star Trek prodigy. you know those, those releases have been really amazing
4: Yeah, and as, they're huge.
7: Six hours, seven hours. Wow.
4: As we're moving forward, and Neil knows this as well. Whereas we would do an album, you know, six years ago, and it would just be finished in sixteen bit, forty four one, because it was going to be on CD. Now we're we're finishing things in high res, so it's like we have twenty four bit, ninety six k, ready to go. If there's going to be a vinyl or you know maybe digital as well, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be from the same record label that does the limited edition CD because the rights might be with the studio, but. The studios are releasing a lot of stuff digitally, so we want to have the the highest quality we can do.
2: When you're doing this kind of thing uh, with the with the various tracks and spreading them around and stuff, do you ever uh, start to hear things that you shouldn't have heard, like you know uh, a, a clunk in the orchestra or somebody moving their chair or yeah,
8: um,
2: you know those 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 noises that make us do extra takes when we're actually recording.
8: <laughs> yeah, we hear them and and sometimes we can get rid of them. Uh, but a lot of times I figure, you know, that orchestras are not quiet by nature, and they do make noises. And uh, the only thing I, I think Jerry ever asked the orchestra to do, if they're going to make a noise, do it in time. He used to announce that from the podium. So you know, speaking of that,
1: um, oh, I there's a main title cue that Ennio Morricone did. I think it's a picture called Nana. And I swear to God, somebody sneezed right on the right beat, and they just left it in.
3: <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. You know, um, Bruce and I did the, the, the sound. We did a reissue of the soundtrack, The Basic Instinct. And I was up at his studio and, and, and working on it. And then I got the CD. And in one of the tracks I heard, I swear I hear somebody sneeze on it. And we missed it. But then when we went back to do the vinyl, I was like, I want to get rid of that sneeze <laughs> on basic instinct. So did you? we were
4: able to do that. Oh, wow. When we, we did uh, Airplane 2, which was, you know, even more low budget, um, Elmer Bernstein wasn't really involved at all. And it was uh, Armin Kazikian, the cellist. Uh, he, he performed on he was telling me he's like yeah my chair was squeaking and I'm like oh that's what that sound was because <laughs> you can hear it through the entire score this squeaky chair because it was recorded in like this tiny studio and it's just yeah so mm. stage, but it's stage noise it's like it, at least it's a real orchestra yeah that's yeah. the
7: thing it kind of just disappears in the movie so often you know why redo it and and those to kind of mix this.
4: i've gotten to the point where i just
3: paint a lot of that stuff out mm. i'm sorry, i mean i know there's humans and they make noise and it's part of the experience but I, sometimes it distracts it me so I, I just get rid of it if i can
0: but marshall your your story about that morricone score is really funny because i feel like certain composers like i guess morricone and goldsmith are maybe the two best examples would just do weird noises in their scores <laughs> and so there are some times when you're like was Like, I remember, uh, uh, Jens, remember on Hollow Man, there was that track.
7: (laughs) Yeah, we fought about whether that should be there.
0: (laughs) Uh, You heard something that turned out to be just a uh, pencil that got dropped at the recording sessions. You know, Lee Phillips identified it for us. Lee
6: Phillips identified the studio where the pencil would have hit the floor by the sound of the pencil hitting the floor.
0: <laughs> you know, it was Abbey
6: Road Studio B. <laughs> right.
0: Right. So, uh, and to me, and I think another of us, uh, we thought it was just musical, because it happened just right on the beat. Kind of, sort of. Like Marshall said about the the Morricone.
5: Yeah. And, and we were talking about that. Is this some strange synth effect that doesn't appear anywhere else in the score, or is it percussion? We could not figure out what it was for the longest time so you'd never hear it in the movie because in the movie that part of the movie is so
7: noisy you'd never ever hear it right um and they painted it out of the old album release yeah. and they didn't paint it out of the entradas release that's why i like jumped out at yeah me. but you know that's a choice you know you,
3: you're gonna leave the room noise in or you're gonna paint it can, out you know can, can we also talk about jerry singing along with the orchestra oh and rudy <laughs> It's not just Rudy. What are the other ones? If you get his London Symphony Orchestra album that was done as an SACD, you can hear him humming along to Air Force One.
7: Oh, nice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Dan or Neil, do you have anything else you can talk about your work on this? uh, I know, Dan, you... You didn't uh, produce it, but uh, what was it like for you working on this project? Do you, what's your relationship with the Burbs?
4: Well, you know, I, I, I grew up, you know, I the film was was always fun. And, I, you know, I, I enjoyed the music a lot. And then suddenly we're doing the Burbs. It's like, oh, awesome. Um, so I'm going to do the artwork on the Burbs. And for me, anytime I'm doing artwork, it's like, you know, what, what can I even do that's going to be different or, you know, it's it's a lot of just laying out photos, right? So for me, the most interesting thing about it was they sent me over a hundred images wow. from the film. Good grief. Um, to, to to pick from, and that's where it's like, oh my goodness, you know. But then you're you're looking, and it's like there are no pictures of Henry Gibson. <laughs> they just didn't have any. Huh. Um, so so he's not. I don't think you see him in the album at all. Um, but it just you know really whenever I. I take on a project uh, to do the artwork. You know, the key art is always going to be the you know what format is that in? How do you make a rectangular poster square, right? How does it fit? And uh, in in you know that was actually not as difficult for this one as I thought it would be because the the images were pretty wide. They had a lot of extra space uh, from the key art that I was able to use that had already been done before um, the previous two releases. Um, but really, you know, I was, I was always looking to see if there were some behind the scenes images. And I think I got a couple in there that were, that were good. So we get a nice picture of Joe with, uh, with some of the cast members and, you know, things like that. You should
2: have asked me. I have a ton of stuff like that. Uh, I have all these slides that, uh, that they, that they took that I've got that nobody, nobody ever. Oh, nobody... They're all tra-
4: and they're all transferred?
2: No, they're just, they're just in slide books, you know? Oh, wow. But it, they could easily be transferred.
4: Well, when we redo it in a few years, we'll yeah. make <laughs> sure. Yeah, <laughs> it seems to be a perennial. Yeah. We'll, do, we'll do it in Atmos. Not in your <laughs> I, was wondering if, I was wondering
3: if I could ask a question about the Burbs that is not music related. Please. Um, if that's well. Um, I was just wondering if Joe and Marshall could talk about the opening and ending shots of the movie, which is a, a, a very ambitious shot that's pre CGI. And it's terrific. So I was wondering if you could talk about what went into designing and executing that shot.
2: Well, it's a it's a cosmic zoom and it's actually stolen from a Bob Clampett cartoon. (laughs) Uh, And um, I was impressed in a a, I saw a movie called um, Horror Express, which ends with the. uh, the camera zooming back and you see the whole universe and it sort of puts everything that's happened in a different perspective. And, and for some reason, in this movie, I just thought that it the cosmic zoom would be appropriate. And so we, we talked to ILM about uh how to do it. And uh they they did a great job. Uh and then at the end we figured, well, we're gonna we're gonna show the cast again, uh, because I I like movies that do that. Paths of Glory is a great example. Um and so we'll do the cosmic zoom back out again, and uh, thereby putting our, our little story in, into a cosmic perspective. And um, it was—I uh, I don't know—that this story necessarily asked for that kind of treatment, but it it's it was—it was what I thought it should happen. So that's what we did.
1: And it was a universal picture, so we could start with the planet.
3: <laughs> yeah. You know there was I was I did watch the, you know like you know everyone else it seems we we all watched The Burbs the other day. <laughs> and it's a movie that you know it came out in February 89. And if anybody remembers 1989 that was the year of Batman. And there was Batman stuff everywhere that summer. You know everybody wore Batman shirts. But in this movie you've got Corey Feldman wearing a Batman shirt. So he he was he was into Batman before anyone else was into Batman, apparently. And I don't know if that was a if that was in the zeitgeist even then.
2: Well, Batman had been around, you know. Sure. That's <laughs> an IP that was pretty well used even before they did the, the other Batman movies.
3: Well, sure, but in 80, 89, if that thing was just... Oh, I can't remember many people wearing Batman shirts prior to 89, and then suddenly everyone in, in this movie started it.
2: Well, it. Might have been Corey's yeah. own shirt.
0: <laughs> he was a fan of the adam west or an in joke about
6: joe turning the film down maybe <laughs>
2: oh not not one, not one of my not one of my better career moves but but in <laughs> fact uh it, it it really kind of was because i didn't uh i realized i wasn't the guy to make the picture i didn't really believe in the concept so it it worked out fine for everybody you wanted to make a joker movie right kind yeah. of I, I just like I found I was much more interested in the Joker than I was in Batman, and I thought that's not the way it should be. <laughs> that worked in
6: '89. It would have worked now for sure,
2: obviously.
0: While we're on the subject of of uh, movies you wanted to make, Joe, I was curious did you ever did you ever want to make a Western? Because I was reminded of this um, with a, a a friend of mine online. He goes by Zuba, but he was a an extra working in Hollywood, and he once asked you what your favorite Jerry Goldsmith score was. And you did not tell him Lonely are the Brave. You told him The Ballad of Cable Hogue. This this issue that has to be resolved of whether you like Lonely or the Brave or the Ballad of Cable Hogue more, <laughs>
2: or take a hard ride, right? Mm. Yes. Conscious. I mean, that's, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you're you're clearly a, a big fan of the genre and you know uh there were there were, there are western references you you had jerry goldsmith write western themes for multiple films of yours and uh. did you ever want to film did you ever want to direct a western and have jerry score it
2: i don't think there's any filmmaker who didn't want to make a western uh the problem is that yeah. uh, westerns by the time the motorcycle movies were over uh westerns were you're pretty rarefied and the, to get a chance to do them was pretty difficult. The only Western I ever made was a, a half-hour film I did for Showtime uh, with Brian Keith, uh, called called Lightning, mm-hmm. which was an adaptation of a Zane Grey story, for a, a program called uh, Picture Windows, which show, which Showtime did. And the gimmick was that each story started with a painting. And then you went into the painting and it either explained how the painting was made or the painting just led you into the story or whatever. And there were several high profile directors who did these um, because Norman Jewison produced it. Uh, But the problem is that Showtime buried the show uh, and almost nobody has ever seen it. Um, Yeah.
4: Oh, I'd love to see that! Oh, yeah, that's I love all shows. Is that kind of like night night gallery? Yeah, that's Sounds like that. of night gallery.
2: Uh, anyway, it's it's uh yeah. it, it, picture windows is the name of the show, and some of them are on YouTube, I think, but not. I don't think mine is. Um, and it was also had Ron Perlman and Kathleen Quinlan in it, and it was um, it was uh, it was, a, it, was a, it was really a lot of fun. It was about a, it's about a the same great story about a mule.
8: Good lightning, good lightning. Come, come on, damn you, mule! I should have known. Up damn new
2: <sighs> I wanted Jerry to do it, and uh, again, he couldn't do it, and I couldn't have afforded him, and he recommended honey.
8: Oh, that's sand! Lightning, you just saved my life. I could have got sucked down into that. Nobody would ever know where to put a marker or say the words. Lightning, you're the best friend I ever had in my life.
9: Yes, sir.
8: Sorry. Sorry I called you knobhead.
0: Well, we're not gonna hang around here.
2: And Hammy uh, I mean, was a, a really great guy to work with. He's a teacher; spends most of his time teaching now.
0: So we could have maybe there was a chance that a Jerry Goldsmith, Joe Dante, full-on Western score happened. Yeah, but it, it,
2: there would first first need to be a Joe Dante Western for that to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, even a short one is it still counts? Oh, what you, what do you have there, Bruce? Bruce, what are you holding up? Bruce is showing the oral history. What's this?
6: For those listening at home. Bruce Potnick has just held up his copy of the recent publication,
2: Hollywood and Oral History.
8: Joe, are you part of this? Were you interviewed Uh, for this?
2: I don't know. I've been interviewed for so many things I have no idea.
8: (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, they talk a great deal about uh, Hoot Gibson, about the silent days of Westerns and how they were everything.
2: Well, when no, I was a kid, it. I knew who Hoot Gibson was, sure, because they used to run they used to run those films on. And those are the first things available for television. It was like old westerns.
0: Well, anybody in Hollywood who's listening to this recording, Joe Dante wants to do a western. Just so you know, if you're in a position <laughs> to, to make this happen, it needs to happen, even though yes. Jerry Goldsmith's not around to score it. But you
8: can't have a cast of thousands, though. Know? Big bucks will accrue to it, I'm sure.
0: And and, and Hummy Man's still around. He could score it.
8: Yeah.
1: You
0: know? yep. mm-hmm. Speaking of Hummy Man, he was he orchestrated this theme to Star Trek Voyager. Oh. That's right. He did. That's right. By Jerry Goldsmith. Mm-hmm. I, wonder why, I wonder if that's why uh, Jerry recommended him. I wonder if that had happened recently. Uh, before. I don't know.
2: I, I don't know. I don't know how they uh, connected. Well, Se- Second Civil War was before then, wasn't it? That was ninety-seven. So two years later. Yeah. And the and uh, the other one was ninety-four. The, the Picture Windows thing, ninety-four.
0: Somebody Joe, else we got to talk to. We have to hunt down Hummy.
2: Yeah, he's a good he's a good guy.
6: Joe, was Picture Windows the show that I know for a while I kept seeing uh, the Oscar-nominated short dramatic films. It looked like three or four of them a year were coming. Were like directed by Christine Lottie and were directed by actors who had clearly been given an opportunity. And I thought it might have been connected. I think it was an AFI.
2: I think it was an. I think that was an AFI project. Uh, was it? Okay. That they that they got a bunch of actors who wanted to direct and they, they and they did shorts. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's right. uh, and that uh, was a quite. It was quite a uh, trend at the at one point.
6: Yeah, I remember seeing a lot of that, and I thought it was connected to some cable show, but I'm, obviously I'm wrong about that. Well, I want to say about the album. When Neil Bulk works on a score, he meticulously makes sure you get the right cue, the right name, the right take of the cue, the right edit point if it's edited together, so that it's it's about as definitive as is possible. This includes, for instance, I think his, his it must have been the sixth or seventh release of the Blue Max, it is so definitive that when it got re-released by La La Land, they just re-released his thing. And he also makes a point if he can of making sure that if you've grown up on some previous album incarnation you can recreate it so i think his great train robbery enables you to recreate any of the previous five releases of the great train robbery that you may have have embedded in your (laughs) in your skull so just so you know you haven't you know if mike medicino works on john williams it's going to sound great if neil has worked on a score release it is probably to me he's the no disappointments album producer it's it's gonna probably make you happy and addition to the sound quality we've been talking about he got some of the cues right this time that were misnamed uh and brought in alternates that are really appropriate alternates so uh i commend to you this release even if it's the third time you bought the burbs because in addition to sounding good i
0: i saw on the film score monthly board somebody commented to neil like how did you get rid of this brass flub there was a or there was some kind of player mistake in the music and neil replied because because this was on both Verez editions and neil replied oh i there was an edit point that didn't match the film that's right and i fixed that and now there's not a an instrument mistake can you talk about that some neil and that that was you know
3: to talk about the burbs though is really mike medicino is really the driving force on this one um because he did the he did the you know the new mix and, and the new master on it from the two inch but i had Done preliminary work from the DAT, and that was one of those things where it was. I remember that conversation where I, had, the DAT, like I said, wasn't organized, you know, wasn't slated with anything, and I had two takes of the end title, like two complete, full takes of the end title. and I was like, well, okay, I got to figure out which one is which, and it was really close. And then, like, if when I was listening close enough, I could go, oh, there's a little noise there. That's where the edit is. That's where the edit is. And I was like going back and forth, and it turned out it's just an eight second insert from one of these other complete takes. They just used eight seconds of it. Even when Mike was doing it, he was like, are you sure this is right? He's like, cause I don't hear I was like, yeah, I said, yeah, it's, it's right. Just just go with it. Um, and then going back to including the original album, we the original soundtrack album for the Burbs had completely different titles for the tracks than our release. So i I did include a little note on how to sequence the original album right you know, just take these right. take these parts and you you can do that. so you can enjoy the verbs however you however you like.
4: yeah I would say what, anytime I'm working on a project with Neil, it's like it just it blows my mind how he's able to just narrow down the smallest edit like I met, I would miss. And I have missed in some albums I've worked on, so I apologize to people who. Oh, believe me, believe <laughs> me, I've I've made mistakes too. Don't. Uh, I, you no, know, but but, as... but any t- anytime I'm working with Neil, it's like we, we we make sure to go back and forth, and Neil's usually the one who's the uh, you know the, the super specific guy to catch my mistakes, and then then in the end, it, it's a great album. I, and I just want to it's, point it's out that I
3: catch my mistakes too, and and uh, I'm my worst. I'm my worst critic.
0: Mm-hmm. And and he may correct it on a future one, like he's done
4: on several. <laughs> other, I mean, i right,
6: yeah. So I'm just a tip of my done, hat, and it's a well earned tip.
4: We we've done releases um, without naming names or anything, but w- there have been releases where I missed something, the Neil missed something, the studio missed, the composer missed something, and then you, you get the album and you're like, oh my god! <laughs> but everyone missed it, and everyone signed off, and these, you know, Pete, yeah. we're only human. You That's know? right.
6: That's right.
7: I'd also just say everyone keeps saying you know it's a perennial and it's the third time now and and whatnot, but it's important to remember that you know those first two albums were hard to get. I mean, by the time I got into Santa collecting yeah. that first one was already a grail that we were never going to get. It was impossible to find.
4: Oh, I I don't want to tell you how much I paid for the the original Varese Club release. I don't, 70, 75 dollars. It, it was a lot for me. Uh, well, that's not bad. That's not bad. bad. That's pretty
6: good. It, I, it was yeah. a deal.
7: But I mean, I I got I got into it with the second release and that.
0: Became rare
7: very quickly. So and that was a like, three thousand copy release. It just seems like there have never been enough copies of the Burbs around.
5: Here, here, and La La Land has cautioned that this one is likely to sell out pretty soon. So yeah. uh, if you haven't got a copy, do so now.
0: Fifteen hundred copies is not a lot for a for a definitive edition of a Jerry Goldsmith score, much less one this much fun.
3: Joe, you now you said that, that. By the way, I'm I'm completely fixated by your cat. Um,
8: yeah. uh, I am I am very fixated.
3: What's uh, yeah. the cat's I, name? I see,
8: I see a cat
3: and I get, I get happy. This is Walter?
2: Yeah, it's Walter. Walter? Aww. It's not um, my cat. He's, he, he, he belonged to somebody else. He's adopted me. He it's Walter? I, I didn't name him.
3: <laughs> well, this is Walter. <laughs> yes, that's a you in the book. Um, now, you say the, the, the Burbs is about as popular, you say, or maybe even more so than, than Gremlins of all your films?
2: Uh, it is the most uh requested autograph thing that I you know oh. if I, somebody says here autograph something it's, yeah, it's yes. it, there's Gruumbles of course
9: mm-hmm.
2: uh, in which I lump in with grumbles too because some people don't even know the difference but uh, but the Burbs is actually uh, one of the most popular movies I ever made, which you would never know from the uh, critical reaction when it came out
7: right it's you gonna know. it's undergone a real reassessment I feel in the last decade or so yeah, yeah.
0: aged well.
4: Joe, mm-hmm. when you sign it, what, what's your catchphrase? Because with like the howling, you do beast wishes and piranhas best fishes. So I'm curious if you do like what, what do you do with. Uh, no, with I, don't, I don't. I ha-
2: don't. I don't have a, a catchphrase for that. Oh, OK, one. all right. signing your name.
0: Well, any any more questions anyone wants to ask the group? Was there
3: any political uh, connotation to having the That's development named Hinkley Hills? <laughs>
2: Yes, of course. It's named after John Hinckley.
3: <laughs> okay. I, I was just trying to – I was just seeing that that was uh, – so He's you, immortalized. To, yeah. <laughs> what was the, uh, the decision for the McCarthy 76 button on Robert Picardo <laughs> – uh, he's got a rainbow on one side and McCarthy seventy six,
2: which is that was that was Bob's idea. That was just his.
3: <laughs> you
2: know, when you're playing a part that small, mm-hmm. uh, and you're a good actor, you want to you want to you want to bring something <laughs> to it. You want to create a, a history. The character, and uh, it's one of the reasons why he's such a good actor, is that uh, he he does he does the homework, and mm-hmm. even though you don't see stuff, it's it's all there, it's all part of his performance.
5: Well He and Dick Miller make such a great little duo in that scene, and their differing views on what the rights of citizens are in relation to their trash and so on. It's it's a, yes, a great we, little bit. We should
2: have we should have spun them off to a sit- <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, uh, their conversation entirely uh, uh,
0: a um, improv.
2: Yeah, that's not in the script. Oh, wow.
0: Uh, Joe, Joe, because um, I didn't get a, an answer to this. Do you have a favorite film and a favorite score between uh, Lonely or the Brave and The Ballad of Cable Hogue? <laughs> I, I just I just rewatched The Ballad of Cable Hogue. He
8: told you it's going to make a
2: right. Why are we all why are we all knocking the score for Ballad of Cable Hogue? It's great.
0: <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I just rewatched it. It's really good. And there are actually some missing cues. And they,
2: they, they played music on the set. I mean, wow. you know,
0: mm-hmm. come on. And it's almost a musical because each of the three main characters has their own theme that yeah. is, they they sing yeah. as a song. Which Jerry only wrote the main title song, I think. But still, it's he he integrates it. It's pretty cool. And I love that film. It's one of my favorite Westerns. My favorite Peckinpah, I think.
7: And to this day, when you, when you see a picture of Jerry Goldsmith on the Apple Music app, it's Richard Gillis. What?
3: Really? No, you're kidding me. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> I, I use an audio program to play my my library called rune the picture of john stephen lasher is jerry goldsmith <laughs> and and they have a way of telling them that you know th- mm-hmm. this is the wrong picture and they said why isn't this john stephen Lasher?" i said because it's jerry goldsmith
8: <laughs> it's interesting that jerry did 10 westerns yeah and at least and i did the last one with with him which was bad girls and we did it in london of all places
7: that's a great sounding score
3: there's a there's a great outtake it's in the Dick Miller documentary from the shooting of the Burbs where Corey Feldman is sort of screwing around on the set and Dick Miller, yep. <laughs> can, yep. I, can I repeat it? Is that allowed? Do you guys want to say sure it? Sure, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Shut the fuck up, kid. We're trying to do some acting here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Corey was, was a little rambunctious on that picture, but I think he was. Yeah. he was ingesting substances at the time.
1: And had strippers in the uh in his uh, trailer trailery.
2: Not to mention bubbles. Oh god, <laughs> bubbles, Michael's Michael Jackson's chimp, <laughs> who is who was a, a, a frequent guest in uh Corey's uh really rather rather dirty um um it, 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 the the fact is that Bubbles just shot all over. Him, oh. you know, wow! We had to ban him from the set. But Bubbles
7: was Bubbles. Yeah, oh, wow.
2: I think it was, I think it was on one of the call sheets. Bubbles is persona non grata.
7: <laughs> <laughs> Do you know why Tom Hanks and Rick Ducommon didn't get along on set? Uh, That's something I heard about. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why they
2: didn't get along, but it's great that they didn't get along because it, 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 their scenes are so much better. There's so much tension in that relationship and, but it wasn't like they didn't like each other. They just didn't really, they just really didn't get along. And, uh, and, you know, we had a chance to hire people like Rick Moranis or Dave, uh, the other, who's the other, uh, Dave Thomas, Thomas, um, uh, for that part. And, and they, they're good actors. They would have been good, but they, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have had quite the, um, the heft of yeah. of the relationship that that's in the movie now, which I think I think Rick Dukeman is one of the best things
7: about the movie. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. agreed. One more question for you, Joe. Bob Picardo came up. I know he's a big fan of film music, and Jerry Goldsmith. He uh, he is he has performed the Star <laughs> Trek Voyager theme vocally <laughs> on memorable occasions. <laughs>
9: All
8: right, you get the idea.
0: But I-, I was wondering if he said anything to you or if any other actors, you know, of any stature you've you've worked with has have commented on the goldsmith scores or you know expressed excitement or attended recording uh, sessions or anything like that
2: that's not usually the kind of thing actors do but i do know that bob was uh, very fond of his cowboy theme from inner space mm. mm-hmm. Which um, you know he, uh, he used to hum, <laughs> anyway. oh, yeah. and at the at the drop of a hat he'll go into that accent. Which of course now, if you made that movie, you couldn't do that character. Right. Um, but um, you know it, 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 Jerry really caught the uh, the humor of that character.
0: I th- I could be wrong, but I think Jerry Goldsmith is his favorite film composer as well. So yeah, that's, that's what cool. he told me. Uh, well, it, it's been so great having you all here to discuss the burbs. Um, really, really appreciate it. And uh, un- until next time, until uh, <laughs> hopefully there's another uh, new edition of a, a score that that Jerry did Thank for Boo. Joe Dante. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming, Dan. Nice to meet
4: you. Cool. Thank you for having me. I
5: really Thanks. appreciate it.
6: Thanks for coming again, Joe. It's really great to talk to you again. No, that's fine. Thanks,
5: everybody. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Marshall. Bruce.
2: Neil, Neil. thanks. Neil, good seeing you again too. Good
5: Good
2: night, Gracie. (laughs) Thanks, everybody.